1: What's going on, guys? This is Drew Lieberman, and you're listening to the Sideline Hustle Podcast. This is part one of a three part series focused on the coaching carousel or searching for jobs and networking and, and that whole side of the business. Um, I think this needs you know more than one episode because it really is the heart of the business of football. You know, coaching your players, making them better, that's an art, that's your craft, and the best coaches are, are able to perfect their craft. But a lot of guys' careers are defined almost more by the people they know and what what job they can get next as opposed to the development and accomplishments of their players that's that's just how some guys view it you know this is a business and it, it's a fascinating business at that where you know many times the most successful careers have launched off of a chance encounter at a coaching clinic or through some mutual connection that they never would have thought would have come through and given them an opportunity that you know they never expected to have this episode is a collection of stories about prominent head coaches and assistant coaches changing jobs uh the effect it has on the players and staff around them and and what it's like being on the hot seat or being a part of a program where the coach is perceived to be on the hot seat. You know, Hopefully all of this will help to provide some insight into how things actually happen and, and what we kind of go through behind the scenes. Tomorrow, December 19th, we will release part two of this series where we will give our best insight into how to handle the coaching carousel, how to find a job amongst all this madness, and really try to explain how all of this works. Just so you guys know, from now on, I'm, I'm going to do my best to uh, put some more information in the episode write-ups about people or places that we I bring up during the episode that we don't give you any background information on. So that way, if, you know, if you're confused and you hear a name or, or something that you haven't heard before, just check the episode right up and I'll try to include everything that I think you guys might need some more info on or I'll do a better job of interjecting during the episode to, to make sure you guys are well informed. Stay tuned for previews of tomorrow's episode and news about when it will drop on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us at Sideline Hustle. Enjoy the episode and I will see you guys tomorrow. You keep in touch with Loxley at all or no?
2: Yeah, I, yeah, I talked to Loxley. In fact, I helped Loxley get hired at Alabama.
1: Mike Loxley worked under Coach Freedgen when he was the head coach of Maryland.
2: Talked to Coach Saban. Talked to him to get hired on there. In fact, uh, he called me and asked me about Mike. And a day later, Mike had called me and said, Ralph, he says, "Uh, I think Nick Saban's going to call you. Would you give me a recommendation? I said, I already talked to him. I said, I lied for you. (laughs) When I I saw Coach Saban last year at the Peach Bowl, and I asked him how Mike was doing. He said, he's unbelievable. He said, I'm going to hire him. So... Mike went down there as a quality control guy. And now he's assistant offensive coordinator at Alabama. So I think the move has worked out well for him. And then Coach Saban called me whether he could be a coordinator or not. And I talked to him there. And he hired somebody else. But I think he named Mike as a co-coordinator. So be interesting to see what happens with all these coaching positions now.
1: I know. It's been a crazy, crazy offseason that way. Yeah,
2: it really has.
3: Reach. reach, reach to stop, stop, stop.
4: What's going on, everybody? This is your host, Drew Lieberman. What up? This is Gary Nova, your everyday quarterback. And you are now listening to the Sideline Hustle Podcast. Podcast.
1: Here's two guys, one guy who coached in the Big Ten and one guy who played in the Big Ten, talking about their experiences. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, you did do a good job of getting rid of the football.
4: I mean, yeah, yeah sometimes
5: I little. got rid of it to other teams. right, right, like, right, right, right. <laughs> right.
3: Right, 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 right. From the sidelines, we gotta hustle cause we gotta eat. From the sidelines, we got some goals that we still gotta reach.
2: You've become a graduate assistant, you've done a good job, you now are gonna get recommendations from the people you work for who know people. This is Ralph Friedgen, former head coach at the University of Maryland. When I was at Georgia Tech and Billy O'Brien or Doug Marone were graduate assistants.
1: Bill O'Brien and Doug Marone are both head coaches in the NFL, and at one point were both GAs for Ralph at Georgia Tech.
2: I remember Doug Marone, he was a graduate assistant and uh, was coaching tight ends. And our offensive line coach left, and I had just taken the job. I spent a weekend with Doug, essentially interviewing him. And on Monday, when when we all went back to work, I told George O'Leary that I'd be okay hiring Doug Marone. He thought I was nuts. You're going to hire a graduate assistant coach, to the offensive line I said. I think he'll do a good job, and he did. And it was pretty much the same with Billy. You know, Billy was my graduate assistant, and then ended up be- getting a job as the running backs coach. And obviously, those two guys have gone on, done pretty good for themselves. But so it's, um, you know, if, you, if that can happen, does it always happen? No. But even if you take a step down, it's coaching. Coaching is coaching. And so, you know, now you really you really have a chance to make other contacts, other impressions, and, and, and you can grow from there. It never knows where it's gonna go. I could tell you on my list, I had a lot of guys that were Division Two, II, Division Three coaches that I had come across that I thought were good coaches. So that, that didn't really play into it, into my thoughts.
3: From the sidelines, we gotta hustle cause we gotta eat.
1: Junior year. Was the year when all the Joe Pa stuff happened and and the suspensions and everything? Or was that, like, when when did that all so occur? So,
5: my junior year, um, we played a cupcake, I think, the first game of the year. What's up, guys? This is Sean Stanley, defensive line coach at Wesleyan, former Penn State defensive lineman, heading into uh, a battle against Alabama at home. Again, that was a, a, we played them a lot better this time, second time around, but uh, they still had a ton of talent. I think we lost that game by I want to say 11 points or something, it yeah. was like, or maybe 14. It was like 27 to 13, I think.
1: And this is 2012, right? Or no, this is, 2011 season. Yeah, this is 2011, 2011 season, 2011 season, yeah.
5: So we lose that game and then we go on a roll. We're just knocking teams off one by one. And then I want to say it's early November. We get out of a Monday practice. It's regular business as usual. You go to, We have practice, you go to dinner afterwards. Now we're back in our apartments. And then all of a sudden you just turn on the TV and it's news that something's going down at Penn State, that Joe Paterno might be fired, the board is meeting on his uh, status as a coach, not really sure why, and then more details start to come out about the Jerry Sandusky thing. And really it was just kind of a shock and you didn't really know what was going on at the time. And then all of a sudden there's riots downtown. And as players, I don't think any of us really got into the riots. It was more that you heard the riots were going on and you wanted to see what it was. So... We might have gone downtown and kind of looked right. from afar, yeah. but we still didn't really know what was going on. And then the next day, it really kind of set in that this was real. Um, there was actual an actual problem that uh, we were a part of, even though we had nothing to do with it.
1: And then so, like, take me through the, the coming days after that. Like, what was, what was you guys are, are still preparing for a game All this is going yeah. on, right?
5: Yeah, so we're preparing to play Nebraska. It's a big game. I mean, again, if we win this, then we have two more games, I think. To finish the season and we still only have one loss like we're in the discussion for everything at that point and now it's it's almost the talk is like do we play the game do we forfeit where do we really go from here while like everything's still trying to be figured out like who did what what's the actual story why is this even happening when you're really like as players we just thought on Tuesday we'd wake up and go to class, and right? We'd be in our Tuesday practice and full pads, and
1: no doubt, because that's what that's what you're used to. It. that's what you hang your hat on as a football player it's just routine, and and this is what I do every week. It's my weekly schedule. So what what happened? Like, I don't even remember what happened in that game. You guys ended up like did he coach you guys? You guys so played it
5: from what I can remember. Like I don't know if it was that next day, but pretty much Coach Paterno was out and uh, Coach Tom Bradley, who we called Scrap. Was now the interim head coach And I mean at first it was a little bit different Like you go to that Tuesday practice And the guy that's been there for 40-50 years Is no longer there And the coaches are just trying to kind of keep everything normal Right. But you know there's something going on Yeah. Um, but I think we still had a great week of practice And we went in, into the Nebraska game expecting to win And we played well But I think we came up a little bit short in that game and again, there was just a lot more going on yeah. that was bigger than football at that point. But it was really just kind of I think when we were playing the game, it wasn't really a problem, but it was just that it kind of affected our um, preparation. Your, your
1: focus, your preparation, there's no doubt, yeah. So you guys lost to it in Nebraska and then you played and you beat Ohio State still while this was going on. Yeah. And then how how are things like developing amongst the locker room? Like what were you guys really feeling or you know, how was how was everything affected by by the circumstances?
5: I mean it was hard to ignore it where like now there's cameras in your face, like you're just trying to walk into the same building you walk into every day to do your, right. your weekly business and now all of a sudden there's a camera in your face asking what you think about something you don't even know about. Yeah. Um, I think it was much harder on the coaching staff where the guy that they'd been led by for however many years they were there was no longer there and they were trying to figure it out by themselves when really nothing really had to change. Like they knew what the, the blueprint was but they were just under pressure. They knew that their jobs would be on the line that next off season, And I think they really kind of crumbled under the pressure more than the players did. But I think overall, we as a program kind of handled it the best way we could. Um, again, we lost that first game to Nebraska right when the news broke. But then we went, beat Ohio State. I can't really remember what happened after that. I want to say we played Michigan State. But, I mean, that season ended up we were still a very good team. We went to the... Um, ticket city bowl against houston and that's kind of where everything started to unravel because there were some guys that didn't want to play in the bowl game there's guys that did want to play in the bowl game we had plenty of meetings about it and there was a meeting where we really thought we weren't going to play in a bowl game like so many guys were adamant that they didn't want to do this like they they thought the ncaa was against us they thought this group was against us and they really just wanted to kind of end the season so and it was mostly a lot of guys that didn't play some seniors that were just kind of tired of Uh, The grind But overall I think we made The best decision In playing Because it was The best thing For Penn State The fan base And everything Where everything Just stayed normal Where if we would Have gone into December And there was nothing To talk about Except that Yeah for sure I mean again We went there Case Keenum Kind of carved us apart I mean that That Houston team Was a very good team Mm -hmm.
1: Um, He set the record There didn't he Yeah like, And
5: it wasn't Something like It was just very tough He was a very good Quarterback They picked us apart 10 yards at a time And it was a very Quick pace, I mean, it was it was tough in the fact that we weren't, we'd never really seen anything like that except Indiana. Better coach, better players. Better players, uh, yeah. And just a better scheme that kind of just took, took advantage of what we gave them.
1: So then senior year, going into senior year, um, Bill O'Brien gets hired.
5: I mean, we kind of finished the bowl game and then uh, most guys that have been in Division One know, like, you really only have a week and a half, two weeks, depending on when that bowl game was. So... We kind of finished the bowl game i actually went home for a week and it was back in state college just kind of hanging out before the next i think it was like two days before we had to be back for winter conditioning in uh the uh spring semester and all of a sudden you see that bill O'Brien is the top candidate for the job after they had said this guy was and this guy was and but they finally kind of settled on bill o'brien so i think it was like two days before we actually started um the spring semester, Bill O'Brien was hired, and now he's on campus. He has a meeting with the players that are there so far. And you could kind of tell from then, like, he was a no bullshit type of guy. He wasn't gonna take anything. He had that NFL pedigree, so I think people respected him, like, knowing that he came from a successful NFL team and the Patriots. And everybody was kind of excited. It wasn't really like, what's this new coach gonna be? It was more, we're moving on. We have someone else in here. And, like, let's hope for the best.
1: Uh, So when he took over, what were the messages that he initially preached to you guys to get things going and and create that initial mindset of excitement?
5: I don't think it's as much as what he said. It's just that you kind of saw that there was a different, like he wasn't going to tailor to what Paterno did in the past. We were just moving on to a new and different era of Penn State, and he didn't really care what anybody had to say about it. And I think that's kind of what built that 2012 team, like, we weren't gonna care what the outside said. We were just gonna do what we had to do, take care of business and kind of let our football talk for itself. So again, he he definitely instilled that we were gonna be a hardworking team. We were still gonna do all the things that made us successful in the past, but we weren't gonna harp on everything that was negative. He was gonna take care of the media for us. We didn't have to worry about that anymore. And I think that kind of just allowed us to, to go back to our regular routine.
3: From the sidelines, we gotta hustle cause we gotta eat.
4: I want to I kind of talk about that whole situation when Coach Ciano left. This is Gary Nova, your everyday quarterback. Because I know for me, it was nuts because, you know, we were working out in the weight room. Just a normal, normal off-season day. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, I think one of our players was on a treadmill. He saw it pop up on, like, a TV in the treadmill. He let everybody know. And the next thing you know, the whole building is lined up in the, in the the in the training room watching the TV, not knowing what the hell is going on. And I know you have a story about, you know, the coaches actually being there at Bosco recruiting you.
0: Every single assistant coach, uh, wide receiver coach, running back coach, linebacker coach, DV coach, every single coach is at, at Bosco that day. And yo, what's up? It's Leontay Carew, Miami Dolphins, Rutgers legend, and you're listening to the Sideline Hustle. We're in the gym, me, Darius, Hamilton, Elijah Shumate, Yuri Wright, you know, pretty much, uh, big time recruits. I was the only guy at the time that was committed. It was about six days before signing day. And, uh, they're all in there trying to get the other guys to flip wherever they're going and just convince guys to, you know, eventually come to Rutgers. And I'm in there trying to talk to Darius and Elijah and trying to get them to come to Rutgers. I remember our gym teacher, he, he, it pops up on his ESPN app on his cell phone and he shows, uh, Coach Fleck, which would have been my receiver coach at the time. He's like, you guys see this? And it, it says on the ESPN ticker, Coachiano headed to Tampa Bay, and, and all the coaches, you know, pretty much in the gym, just like their eyes got big, and they just pretty much just start flipping, not flipping out, but they they they, they jump on the phone, they're calling their wives, they're calling yeah. their family, they have no idea what's going on, and I don't know how it works, but all every coach pretty much just left Rutgers, and that, I, I was pretty upset because I was the first big recruit to commit, you know, I, I was committed to Rutgers, and I was ready to sign, and It was just hard for me because all the coaches that I built relationships with I remember a guy like Coach Halfley and Coach Fleck, you know, guys that recruited me that I built relationships with. You know, now that you're telling me they're not going to be there after they promised me all these dreams, it was a little hard. And I remember, um, which made what made me really stay loyal to Rutgers is is one for the fans, and also a guy who actually isn't there anymore. His name was Tim Pernetti. He was the athletic director. He actually personally called me on the phone and said, "Don't worry, Leonte. You know, you're one of our top recruits. We're going to call. We're going to hire a head. I'm going to hire a head coach." that it's going to be great for the program, you know, no worries. And, you know, he stuck to his word and he he hired an a, a in-staff guy, which was Coach Flood. And the funny thing about Coach Flood is he was the first coach at Rutgers when I was going into my sophomore year at Bosco to Facebook message me saying, hey, Leontay, I'm Coach Flood offensive line coach at Rutgers, you know, you're on our radar. He was literally the first coach to ever messaged me at Rutgers. And, and then he became the head coach, which was which was extremely cool. And then I, I was able to get guys like Darius Hamilton and Steve Wong and Kwanza Lindbergh to all commit to Rutgers. And, you know, it was just great.
4: That day was, was crazy. I mean, especially being on campus, you know, guys didn't go to class for two days because we didn't know what was going on, I think. You was such a good recruiter that basically a lot of the guys were going were going to Rutgers just off the fact that they felt like the stability was there. He, he was building a house of like two million dollars. He's been at Rutgers. He, he he basically built them from from nothing to having them ranked in the top twenty-five, right. uh, top, top top five, top five top 10, you know, yeah. top whatever with, with Ray Rice and Mike, who's also a part of this. And then you know, kind of just just telling you that dream that he's not going anywhere, and this is this is where the program is was trending up. So everybody kind of wanted to jump on so when he left everybody was kind of like man what like what are we here for we were here for kind of this guy he's gone why do we stay i think uh having the confidence knowing that like Leonte and darius and all these guys committed was a big reason why i even stayed because it was like all right like he may be gone but at the end of the day it's players that got to go out there and play and we got a really good talented class coming in i think we'll be fine and that was kind of my mindset going going forward also shout out to tim pernetti too i mean he did a great job with us as a team kind of being in a, as, as, a, as the head figure and standing in and letting us know constantly what was going on, who he was kind of uh, interviewing, and I think him hiring Coach Flood had a lot to do with, with the, the guys on the team. I think he really felt that the guys on the team didn't want somebody to come in and change everything because we had a really senior-driven class coming up. All those guys were great players, and uh, you know, kudos to him for kind of you know listening to those guys and. and, and hiring a guy who was in staff and kind of keeping everybody together. Because I think, if he, honestly, if he didn't do that, I think a lot of guys would have left. And uh, who knows, maybe we did, we wouldn't have been won the Big East that year. We wouldn't have, you know, accomplished some of the things that we accomplished as a, as a, as a team. So From um. the
3: sidelines, we got to hustle because we got to eat.
6: The slow pack is the best. <laughs> the
1: slow pack's the best. So, so it's preseason and we're meeting. So we used to practice at 10 a.m. We're meeting probably 8 a.m. Right? So I'm in the quarterback meeting uh, with the quarterbacks and, and our quarterback's coach and he tells me, he's like, hey, I forgot, I have a presentation or something on my flash drive. Can you run to my office to go get it? So I'm jogging down the hall and all of a sudden Norris Wilson, our, our assistant head coach, is sitting at the door and he's like, no, you can't go through here. I'm like, why not? Like I need something for this meeting, like freaking out, whatever. So I go like downstairs, up and around and I, I looked the hallway again and there was three guys with FBI jackets on interrogating like seven, eight, nine, ten of our players. And that ended up turning into a fiasco where like seven of our kids got kicked off the team, right? So that started the controversy. And then, and then our starting quarterback and our best player got suspended for the first half of the first game for getting caught drinking. And then it turns out that Coach Flood was trying to change someone's grade, and he got suspended. So this all and this all happened before the season started. So we we win the first game, and then come the second game. Right after the second game, Coach Flood gets suspended, our head coach, and our best player gets suspended going into the Penn State game. And so it was at that point where we knew our whole, our jobs, our futures were on the line. We needed to go to Penn State in an environment we'd never played in, which you guys have heard on the the episode nine of the podcast, the noise episode of how raucous that environment was. We've never been in a situation like that. We have no head coach, we don't have our best player. And we had to win that game to save our jobs. Needless to say, we lost. And we come back, and we all kind of looked at each other as a staff. We knew that it was an uphill battle for us to keep our job. So our O-line coach at the time, all of a sudden, like, the next week, I think we're playing Kansas, and it's, like, Wednesday, and I just see him in his office. He's putting together this box. He has, like, his cardboard box. He's taping it up, like, putting books and stuff in it. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm slow packing. <laughs> Our days here are numbered. <laughs> I'm going to take one thing out a day until it's all out of here. They're going to kick us out of here eventually. <laughs> and this guy would go out of his way to find cardboard boxes in the facility and, like, pack them up with his stuff. And once a day, maybe once every other day, he would bring a box of his stuff. When we actually did get fired officially, his office was almost was almost empty. <laughs> but I remember there was, like, one day where he had this box on. It wasn't even, like, packed up or anything. It was just, like, a flat box. It was on our staff table for, like like 10 hours that day like 8 in the morning then all of a sudden he comes in at like 8 at night he's like you see my box and we're like yeah we threw it out he goes that box gave me a chance to break even today that was a good box perfect size you really took it away from me and we're like what are you even talking about and I really think that like that like having a coach on the hot seat and like knowing like you know, we got to win this game, we're getting fired. Like, it, it makes people go crazy. And like he was crazy to begin with, but like every, all of us, like it makes you go nuts when you have zero control over your future. I think that pressure and that stress of having a coach in a hot seat or being in a coaching transition like really changes people and makes them kind of wacky.
6: And it's funny from the coaching perspective because I went through it from the playing perspective when I was with Seattle when Jim Mora was Mm kind of on the hot seat. What's up, guys? This is Mike Teal, head football coach at Don Bosco Prep High School, former Rutgers and Seattle Seahawks quarterback. Right. You know, we... We won our first game, and then all of a sudden we lost three in a row. And, you know, there comes a point where we got mathematically disqualified from the playoffs. So guys stopped showing up on time, you know. instead really? of a, heard, yeah, Instead of training and, and getting extra workouts in at 7 for the 8 o'clock team meeting, they'd show up at 7.55 and kind of roll into the meeting. And that happened for, like, probably four or five weeks and then you get to the last two weeks of the season and all of a sudden guys are playing their asses off. I was like, no, I'm a rookie. I had no idea, you know, what was going I was like, what's going on? i talking to Matt Hasselbeck. He's like, guys are playing for their jobs. You know, because the new GM, the new head coach is going to come in. They're going to watch the film. They're going to watch the last couple games and they're going to want to see guys playing hard. Guys, again, they protected themselves for a couple weeks. And now it's time yeah. to, to kind of turn mm-hmm. it on because they know that if they don't, they might not be there. So wow. it, it's it's a lot different as a player. And I was naive to it because I had never been through it. Yeah. You know, I'm a 24 year old kid that, right. you know, figured I had the world by, you know, the balls and everything was going to be yeah. great. And, and it wasn't the case. But you lose the locker room or Coach Moore lost the locker room. Guys quit, and then there came a point where, well, now you got to play to save your job mm. for the next year, and all of a sudden they started playing hard again. It, it was interesting. It was a, it was a dynamic that I had never seen, and it was the business aspect of what the NFL is. Right. You know, it was guys protecting their bodies for a bunch of weeks, and then guys coming back and making sure that they were going to have a job for the next right. year.
1: I think it's similar, honestly. Being a young coach in the same position, like, you know, I would say I, I wasn't as soon as like Coach Flood got suspended, and I think we were, you know, two and six or whatever we were at the time. Um, you know, later in the season, we kind of knew we were going to get fired. I spent a lot more time on football scoop and networking with guys looking for jobs than I did doing my actual job, you know, because I was like, chances of me being able to stay here is slim. We're all going to be fired. So I spent a lot more time, you know, focusing on my next step rather than But then it's funny. Then then once a new coach comes in, similarly, you kind of start to turn it on again because then you're like, oh, let me prove to him. Let me prove that I can work hard, let me prove I'm valuable and hopefully he'll keep me here.
6: Yeah, and what happens when you're in survival mode, you're looking out for yourself, yep. you know, which makes it tough.
1: It does, it does, and that's that's what that's what's brutal about this business is that when that happens, you're not doing right by the kids. And the reason you should be coaching, the pure reason is you should be coaching to help kids become better and, and you know push them always, that should be your focus. But when that, your job of helping those kids is also the means of feeding your family, some point you got to make a decision yourself is always going to come first your family's always going to come first now the kids are your second priority and you securing a paycheck in the future is your first priority and, and i think that's the ugly side of the profession because you're not being the best coach you can be
6: and that's, and that's the reality of what college yeah. kids are they're they're stuck in in this business world where the ncaa is making a ton of money off of them for television the coaches are making a ton of money off of them in their profession and the kids are kind of caught right in the middle of it all and it's it's unfair to the kid but it is. That's the, the reality of what
1: what it is. Oh, oh, oh and that's a wrap for episode number 13 of the sideline hustle podcast again this was part one of a three-part series focused around the business side of coaching we're really going to talk in great detail about the coaching carousel be on the lookout tomorrow december 19th for part two of this series you can find us at sideline hustle on twitter instagram and facebook thank you guys so much for listening i will see you tomorrow
3: hops or get your head three blocks l key rappers hearts pumping like and every day I gain clout, and my name sprout Some brothers will still be born, the crap never came out. I- the wow style, always been a foul child, my guns go boom boom and your guns go out, pow. I'm known to have a hottie open, I keep the shotty smoking, front and get half the bones and your body broken, and when it comes to getting nookie, I'm not a rookie, I got girls that make that chick, Tony Braxton look like whoopee, I run with sturdy clicks, I'm never hitting dirty chicks, got 35 bodies buddy, don't make it 36, step to this, your good is gone, where it's born, I leave mics torn when I put it on, so put it on. And blast the shoddy Got more cash than Gotti. You don't know You better ask somebody Big girl is a crazy brother And I'm a lady lover A smooth kid that'll run up In your baby mother I push a slick pins. I'm no